Hey, Feminist Frequency Radioheads. We know you love to listen to the Fem Freak crew break down what's been happening each week in the world of pop culture. But did you know that you can be part of making that happen? You can. Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak and become a patron of all this tasty feminist media analysis. Backers of the podcast get early access to show episodes, monthly AMA hangouts, merch discounts, exclusive bonus episode hijinks, and so much more. Check it out. Patreon.com slash femfreak. Hey, Feminist Frequency Radioheads. We just recorded a live episode at Geek Girl Con last week, and uh, unfortunately, we lost the first five minutes of the episode, which, you know, had some good stuff in it. So we're going to Frankenstein this episode together for you to uh, at least recreate what we had been trying to do. Um, and we're going to put in some uh, some fake applause sound effects so that you can get the full real simulated experience of our amazing audience that was live with us. So bear with us uh, and hopefully you will enjoy the rest of this episode. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. Today, we are coming to you live from Geek Girl Con in downtown Seattle, the annual showcase of inclusive nerd love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by Ebony Adams, whose greatest loves are Scandinavian crime dramas, British crime dramas, and occasionally American remakes of British crime dramas. And Carolyn Pettit, who will fight you over which art house film is actually the most romantic. It's the end of a decade, a topsy-turvy, God, when will it all be over, what else could possibly go wrong, end of a decade. Our media landscape has undergone profound transformations over the past 10 years. Social media has been instrumental in the amplification of the voices that are demanding better and more inclusive stories. We've gone from old-school broadcast television to an endless roster of subscription-based streaming services, seemingly overnight, and all of it is more than anyone can reasonably afford. All of this, as well as many other factors that we don't have time for today, brings us to the end of a decade whose media, I would argue, in some ways looks quite different than it did when it started. So today, we're going to play a little roundup game where we ask each other to pick our faves and our most hated of the last 10 years. Here we go. We're going to get started with Best Love Story. You ready for this? Singing my life with his words. I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You're the only man that's ever touched me. the only one. I haven't really touched anyone since. Lonnie brought her hair dye over today. She said, I need to fix these roots. Think you could help? Dying hair is weirdly intimate. I don't know if I've touched someone else's scalp before. It's pretty intimate, right? It felt intimate. We looked into the mirror together after, and I expected her to say something about how it looked crappy or good or whatever. But that's when she said, you're so beautiful. And she was looking at me. 
Right in that moment, I wanted to say something, but I waited, and the moment was gone. Let's start with Ebony, who picked If Beale Street Could Talk. I chose If Beale Street Could Talk as my best love story of the decade because I love the way that Barry Jenkins, as a director, and the wonderful people that he cast in this film give us a world in which love is the norm, and it is this expansive, immersive, inebriating gift. And it's familial love. It's love from a parent to a child. It's romantic love. It's erotic love. It's intra-community love. Um, These are things that are located in the Black experience, which have the Black experience and Black identity and Black souls as the focus um, and it is gratifying and it is it you you feel warmed by the world that is created there. Conversely, violence and oppression and untruth living inauthentically. These are the things that are presented as, you know, eruptions in the natural order. And it's it's, I think, notable and um, wonderful that um in this world um, in which the world in which we live in, in which the black media, the black people that we see on screen are often um, the targets of incredible brutalizing violence are um, we we are accustomed to seeing bodies and trauma lives upended that this film, even though it contains those elements um, nevertheless manages to be hopeful and affirmative. It is a film that is devoted to seducing us by showing us the beauty of black skin and black life and allowing us a peek into the peculiar magic of falling in love when you are young and the way that time and place um, gets etched upon your memory. I just think it's a towering achievement. I think Barry Jenkins is one of our best living directors and the fact that he continually puts Black people and Black love at the center of his stories is magical and wonderful. Now moving on to Carolyn with Moonlight. In his review for RogerRebert.com, critic Brian Tallarico says of Chiron, Moonlight's main character, quote, he is young, Black, gay, poor, and largely friendless. The kind of person who feels like he could literally vanish from being so unseen by the world. Moonlight is remarkable, of course, simply for this, for focusing on the kind of person who society and media often completely ignore, the person who falls through the cracks. But it is, of course, so much more than that, too. A film that at once feels entirely grounded in reality, and yet remains shot through with a transcendent beauty that it finds in its shimmering Miami landscapes and in the remarkable faces of its stars. Perhaps it's reductive of me, in a sense, to call Moonlight the best love story of the decade when it's really the story of a young man's life. And yet, I can think of no more powerful statement about the transformative power of love than the one Moonlight makes in its unforgettable third chapter, where Chiron, who has been invisible his entire life, finally knows what it is to be seen. Hey, Anita here again, breaking in real quick. So we are about to go into the live show and we enter at the point in which I comment how I should have picked a movie from Barry Jenkins as well for this category. And Ebony very funnily says, what are you going to pick La La Land? And then here we go. Great if you pick La La Land. (laughs) Oh, God. 
<laughs> Wait, Meta it should have won. What should have won Best Picture? <laughs> it was robbed. La La Land was robbed. Uh, I wanted to. I was gonna pick Beale Street, and that was totally my top one. But um, Ebony picked it, and obviously um, won that one. So because I'm the chief of the podcast. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say something about what you did pick, though? Be- I do. Please, because I. Um, Let's have a conversation. So I picked Gone Home, um, not because I actually think that it's the best love story that was told over the last decade, but because I think it was so profound in gaming in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I think when I think when I'm thinking about the last 10 years of media, one, it's really hard to remember not just the last two years, um, but also like what are the moments in our media history that like popped. And that started something new. And I think Gone Home really did that. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Gone Home is the story of a, it's told through a diary sort of audio logs. And it's a story of a young woman first realizing that she, like her first love and also her first love happens to be another woman, uh, another young woman. And the Gone Home was so instrumental and important because one, you didn't have touching lesbian love stories in video games, at least not like, at this level, it was still indie, but it, it was very um, popular and very mainstream. Um, and you didn't have those kinds of stories in games that didn't involve any combat. So this was profound for both the story and the fact that it was a game where you could just, where you were encouraged to walk around and explore, uncover the story, look at things around the house, and just kind of take it in in a way that is very dynamic and interesting. Um, so I, when t- commenting on Moonlight, obviously I talked about, you know, being seen or being invisible. And my experience as a player with Gone Home was a, 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 a sense of video games seeing me, you know, in a way as a queer woman, in a way that I had mm-hmm. never felt seen by video games before. Mm-hmm. And it was this, it was... And in in all the ways that you just talked about, not narratively, but also mechanically, the way that it tells its story through simply exploring this house, and it's, you know, entirely nonviolent. It doesn't even really have puzzles in the sense that, you know, a lot of games do. You can't lose it or or what have you. Like, it, it, it just felt like this opening a window into a world of of unexplored possibilities for games. Like, you know, like, oh, there are literally, like, all these things that games can do that, by and large, you know, they they don't really do, or at least not, you know, uh, uh, at that level of accessibility and kind of, as you said, kind of mainstream appeal and, uh, and whatnot, yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, it's so easy for us to forget where we were 10 years ago in terms of the media. And so something like this would probably not hit as quite as hard today because there are so much more, uh, there's so much more queer visibility and there's so many more kind of different types of games, I would say, like the sort of explosion of indies really happened in this decade. Um, And so it was profound for the time. Yeah, and I mean, we, I can't think about Gone Home without also remembering the way in which uh, I mean, that game got review bombed, you know, on, it got savaged by so many people who would, of course, go on to be like gamer gators and whatnot for being, for like having an agenda, for being, you know, it, it represented everything that they kind of feared or hated about games. I mean, I, I remember getting messages because I worked at GameSpot at the time from concerned gamers being like, because I gave the game a very glowing review, a very high score, and people were like, 
But if, you, if, if games like Gone Home become super popular, they're not going to make, you know, Call of Duty anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're like yeah, don't, don't worry, man. Your, your shooters, your, your billion, multi-billion dollar grossing military shooters are, are safe. You do not have to worry that the little indie lesbian love stories are going to like, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, let's move on to our next category, which is biggest disappointment. Female lieutenant. In whose army? You're not going to break character, huh? You've been emancipated, I take it? Excuse me? From enslavement. Okay. I'll play along here. I am a black female lieutenant for the Westchester County Police Department. Do you see this gun? I'm authorized to use it. On you. If you're insinuating I endorse slavery, I'm offended. Wait, back up. You're offended? <laughs> so what? Why would that scare me? When he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he doesn't know what I lack or how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am as I am. Uh, uh, all right. Who, who do you think picked Ready Player One? <laughs> You're pointing at me. What? Yeah. Yeah, it was me. Uh, all right, Ready Player One. So why, why is it big? Because I don't think it's like the flat-out absolute worst thing, right? The category is biggest disappointment, which is important. So the thing that makes it my biggest disappointment is Ready Player One should be one of my favorite things. I mean, it's a film in which the climactic moment hinges on the existence of the Easter egg in the Atari 2600 game Adventure. Like, I played Adventure. I loved Adventure. And I intimately understand what the magic of that Easter egg was like at the time. The truth is that in some ways, I'm kind of like Wade Watts, the protagonist of the film and of Ernest Cline's novel. I mean, I love Dungeons and & Dragons and Ladyhawk and Excalibur and all the 80s pop culture stuff that Ready Player One elevates to the level of a religion. But the problem with Ready Player One is that it doesn't have any interest in looking past that stuff, in taking the magic of it and using it to create something new. It wants to gatekeep around factual minutia rather than open the gates and let more people in. It wants to go back, not forward. It's a story in which a white male hero demonstrates that he's really something special because he can look at the extremely attractive woman in front of him and not be put off by her birthmark. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so as much as I love all of the 80s stuff that I grew up with and that Ready Player One just absolutely, you know, kind of celebrates, some ideas should stay in the past. This was, so Carolyn often convinces us to watch films that we really don't want to watch. And this was the one that we, Ebony and I were like, <laughs> nope. no. Nope. Like, it is just, I'm sorry, I don't know, I don't care how valuable it would be for us to do. We're just not so. So I went, yeah, for that, 
I went and saw it all by myself, so that it, I and I think the I mean we still did an episode on it, right? But it was just me talking about like we reporting back about yes. my experience <laughs> we, having watched we the film. We tortured Carol kind of like three or four times with Ready Player One because we made you do like a yeah, one woman reading a couple but I, of times. I had fun with that. Though that was fun. But I loved I how to, we we kept bringing it back, knowing yeah. that you hated it. Yeah, because we're terrible people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Ebony, tell us about Sleepy Hollow. Okay, I want to make it clear, first of all, that the biggest disappointment is Sleepy Hollow past, like, halfway through season two, right? Season one was my shit. It was so good. So the disappointment lies in the way the promise of this just fun show with this amazing chemistry at its heart slowly got the lifeblood sucked out of it and became what? Nothing. It became non-appointment television. It became something I couldn't wait to not watch. Um, So (laughs) there is, I'm a huge fan of shows in which um, main characters, um, particularly um, heterosexual pairings, you know, two like cishet people, can be close, can have real intimacy, but have it not be a romantic relationship. I love when men and women um, are allowed to be deep, loving friends. It's one of the reasons why I love elementary so much, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have, I mean, really, when I tell you the chemistry between Nicole Bahari and Tom Meisen as Ichabod and Abby on the first season, well, throughout the, <laughs> until they killed her, um, throughout Sleepy Hollow. Spoilers? <laughs> I was, no. I was just going to no. go watch this show. Screw that show. I, I listen, <laughs> for reals, but... I loved the way they loved each other as friends, as witnesses. Like, it was, oh my God, it was so wonderful to see. And it is so radical to see two adults loving each other in that way. And so to have that dismissed as if any relationship between a man and a woman must ultimately have romance at its core, otherwise why have these two people together? And also, it seemed as if the showrunners became increasingly uncomfortable with the notion of a black woman at the core of, you know, an adventure show, um, a, you know, great sort of, you know, science fiction, you know, alternate universe where (laughs) Ichabod Crane happened to know every founding father, every person who was remotely important um, to, you know, the genesis of this country's, um, you know, Western-style government. It was a show in which most of the cast were people of color, gradually became more white, gradually became, in fact, not even gradually, um, but very quickly became more invested in Ichabod and his wife, who no one gives a shit about your witch wife, you know? Like, we didn't care about her back in colonial days. We didn't care about her when she was brought to the future, whatever. Um, it just, I never watched the show and it sounds fucking it bad was shit. So good. It was, listen, it absolutely was the best brand of banana soup. Like, it really... They just stirred everything into that pot. And for some reason, it worked. It really worked in that first season. It was clever. Um, it was inventive. It was, you know, smart in ways that you didn't expect it to be smart. And then it honestly, it was like, it reminds me of what recently happened with, uh, with Deadspin. As it, so these new showrunners come in. They see something that is working, that is phenomenally popular. And they're like, 
okay, we know nothing about this show. We know nothing about the fans. Let's try and make some more money by putting some more white people in it, by sidelining the people of color, by, you know, investing the viewers in some, you know, Boogle House romance that no one gives a crap about. And so it just, it became so ordinary. I think that was the, the, the disappointment for me, is that it was something so special, but ultimately it became so ordinary. It's interesting, because I, I didn't watch Sleepy Hollow, mm -hmm. but, but your comments make me think, um, like it sounds a bit like an inverse Halt and Catch Fire, in the sense mm -hmm. that like Halt and Catch Fire, whatever the opposite of biggest disappointment, like most pleasant surprise. Like uh -huh. I liked Halt and Catch Fire from the very beginning, but if you watch that show from the beginning, the way it shifts its focus from the just really being about um, about the, the, the these dudes um, uh, to really pulling in the women and making the women these uh, dudes in tech yeah these dudes in mm -hmm. tech um, important part of that uh, horror show you know it, it it's it's like they understood as after the first season like oh we have like Donna this is like this super interesting character who currently is just relegated mm -hmm. to being Gordon's wife basically like let's like make her way more important um, you know like that was a case of showrunners kind of, I think, reevaluating and just figuring out where the strengths of the show actually were and, like, and shifting the focus to hone in on, on that. Um, totally. And yeah. I fell more and more in love with that show every season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just, ugh. Yeah, and just the final thing I want to say was I can't stress enough how, it, this is a horrible term to use in this context, but revolutionary it was to have a show with a primarily um, a cast, primarily made up of people of color, that is about the founding of the United States and the ways in which we protect the best ideals of the United States. Like the people literally in charge of keeping, you know, our country and the spirit of our country together are a black woman, her sister, you know, her black male boss. Like these kinds of things mattered and just the, as I say, the promise was betrayed. It became just an, another ordinary show. So ultimately the fans were like, yeah, no, I got way too many other shows I could be watching on Thursday, bye. All right. All right, Ebony. Uh, Anita, tell us about your wrong opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. No, you're not. I am. I actually, when I was putting this video together and I pulled that clip out, I was like, I'm a fucking monster for putting that in this category. <laughs> so, Shape of Water. I, so... We were oscillating between like most hated and biggest disappointment, which are very different things, right? And I think that I would never put Shape of Water in most hate. I mean, we just watched Terminator, so like there's no way that Shape of Water is worse than that. Um, I think that I was disappointed for a number of reasons, which, ex which I will go into, but partly because it won Best Picture. It was so um, critically revered and just... Like people were gushing all over themselves, including Carolyn, about. I mean, this I, movie. I liked it a lot more than you did. I, yeah. I, yeah. I remember you liking it a lot, which is probably just because I'm exaggerating. It's fine. So I think that part of my. So I think that that's part of it. If it wasn't a movie, if it didn't win Best Picture, I doubt I would have put it in this category. So um, you know, take that for what it's worth. I think. I think. Like what I when I was putting this together, I was like, oh my god, I'm a monster because I'm being critical of a film made by a person of color, a man of color, about finding love as an outsider. Like, how is that <laughs> a bad thing, right? Um, but I, I think my problem with it, 
Um, so if you aren't familiar, the film focuses on a woman who feels like an outsider for many reasons, including her muteness or like her being mute is a, a huge part of her character. Um, and that she finds someone who see, who she believes sees her for who she really is. And that person is a giant fish. Cool. Um, to me, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> To me, you know, the, sh the movie was really lauded for its diversity, but I felt like it was checking a quota box. I felt like so many of the characters in it and the storylines in it were very much just like, you know, you could have, you could just rearrange the pieces and put it all together. Um, you know, the villain was so over the top, so like it, his misogyny was so horrific to make sure that we know that he's really bad. Um, and I think that, you know, the film is whimsical, it's a fairy tale, but and I like those things generally, but ultimately it felt very simplistic. Um, it didn't really, those, those different caricatures didn't feel um, in, in line in the whimsy that, in the same way. So I think the over-the-topness just felt like over-the-top as, as opposed to serving a narrative purpose. Um, I also had issues with the fact that like consent was questionable in in the relationship. There was some like, vaguely remember that there being some kind of like, you know, are they are they hooking up? Did he is he okay with that? Does he want these things to happen? I don't know. It's gross. Also, fish fucking. I'm just not okay with it. So it's fine. Interesting. Call me a bigot. It's fine. And don't goes don't on call me a bigot. As being not into fish fucking. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Can I have a bonus? Bonus, uh -huh. what? For Biggest Disappointment. Uh -huh. Yeah, but then can I go back to Shape of Water? No, do it. Yeah, go talk about it then. Um, this one was difficult for me because I felt like um, I'm speaking for a community of which I am not a part, and so it feels inappropriate somehow. But I have to say that the scene that you picked there was one of the things that really didn't sit well with me. Um, so we have this woman um, who you know does not speak, um, and I don't remember. Is it clear that she does not speak or is unable to speak? She, not, I, uh, okay, so that, that doesn't matter to my point, remember. which is that... Yeah. Do you know what, the answer? Okay. That's right. Thank so you. I just thought, like, in terms of... I'm sorry, you clearly like the movie. <laughs> in terms of disability rep, the way that scene that we've just seen in particular is framed, I acknowledge the, the impetus behind... Um, the way she says, like, you know, he, he doesn't see what I'm lacking and how important it is to feel seen um, for your complete self, right? But it just seems to me that she, as the disabled person, is herself sort of foregrounding, seeing herself as incomplete, as lacking somehow. And they just, to me, felt dicey. She doesn't say, he knows I'm complete you know, and other people don't, you know, other people see me as lacking, he doesn't, you know, um, but they're incorrect. She says, he doesn't know uh, what I lack, you know, as if I do lack something, he just is, is unable to see that thing. You don't have to leave with your baby. Oh yeah, keep the baby. You're fine. Give me that baby. Yeah, you can bring it up here. <laughs> He's like, I'll be back in two minutes. So that was one thing, but again, because I'm not a member of that community, I. I hate to say this is problematic, you know, A or B, you know, it is either is problematic or not. Just for me, I was like, I don't, I don't love the way that she herself frames this. But um, so there's that. But then also, hold on, before yeah. you go on, with the, all the same caveats, I find it uncomfortable that her voice is this white dude's voice, mm -hmm. right? Like that's how we know what she's saying. 
Um, so minor, but yeah, you know, and then related. The, the other thing is, I think Octavia. I need to be better about speaking to the mic. Octavia Spencer is such a huge talent. She is amazing, and I am so tired of these kinds of roles for her. These sort of, you know, secondary support, like best friend, I'm gonna offer a little sassy advice, and I recognize I say this, I offer Anita sassy advice, <laughs> but I am still the lead in my own story. I don't think <laughs> Octavia Spencer, she deserves more. I hope she starts being offered more. I hope she accepts more, because the this role and others like it exist solely for her to be like a cardboard character, you know, that has no three-dimensionality um, and no inner life, and I just... I want more for her. And so that was another part of this film that I was like, eh. Yeah. Biggest disappointment, clearly, mm -hmm. from Ebony. Um, okay, my really quick bonus one that I thought about at lunch today and almost swapped out was, uh, was Roseanne. And here's... I think that I, I kind of I think that this is important because it's not like when they announced that they were going to make the show that I was like oh hooray oh it turned out it's crap it's like no we all know that Roseanne Barr is transphobic and bigoted and racist and I don't know how many other things that are all the things she's horrible um, so I didn't want the show to be rebooted or remade I knew it was going to be bad but even that said it was such a disappointment because the original show was so important. Um, that we did, it, one, if you, if you start reading some of the interviews and stuff around the original show that came out in the early 90s, it started in the late 80s maybe, early 90s, um, she was fighting constantly with the network to make sure that certain things stayed in the show. So in terms of queer representations, in terms of like, in terms of uh, things that we don't see in the media or hadn't seen in the media up to then. So um, issues of class were forefront in a way that, you know, like grounded as the show was about working class white people um, and what that meant. And, you know, including various representations of queerness throughout the seasons. Like there's just, there's a lot in, in that original show that uh, feminist cultural media critics just dive into because <laughs> it was so exciting and so the fact that it was reboot and it was trash and it was made by a trash person and like I think that that's really disappointing it was I mean the Connors you can't there's like these blue collar working class exemplars right so to bring them back and if you want to say that like okay these people have become Trump supporters there's a story there, but they were not interested in explaining how, like, this white blue-collar family might have some Trump supporters in it, you know, like how they might have bought into, um, you know, certain versions of the, the economic anxiety myth, right? It was just this very facile, um, you know, kind of thing that we were supposed to accept, and it was like, this is not at all what Roseanne was like in the 80s. So this, this, if you're going to tell me that this woman and this family have become this thing, you need to do a lot more work to convince me that they've gotten here and that I should still find them sympathetic. Yeah, totally. All right. Our uh, last main category is best cultural commentary. Half a mile away from Edgewood Lane. Huh? <laughs> it's crazy. They got me out here in this creepy, confusing ass suburb. <laughs> Girl, so serious though. 
like a sore thumb out here. Departed. Disappearance of 2% of the world's population. None of them are coming back. Yeah, probably not. All right. Best cultural commentary. Carolyn, I'm guessing Kentucky Route Zero is yours. <laughs> sure was. Um, cardboard computers, stunning magical realist American odyssey, Kentucky Route Zero, is both intimate and sprawling. It begins with Conway, a driver for an antique store, setting out on his last job, making one last delivery as the store closes, an old dog by his side. But that seemingly simple job becomes a massive adventure that takes us into the terrifying precarity of life for members of the working class in contemporary America. It's a game that has, you know, bald eagles large enough to pick up houses and has amazing women, you know, musical performers who once were robots. But it's also a game of home foreclosures, crushing medical debt, and the inescapable exploitation of the American worker by massive corporations. It's a tale of friendship and solidarity, of folks joining up with other traveling companions in search of an America in which all of them are valued. It's the story we need right now. Mm. It's a real good game. Yeah, I only played a little bit of the first one, and ever you bring it up all the time, and I'm like, oh, I should go back to that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's... Uh, I would say that the first episode, it uh, it gets, like, if you play the first episode and you're kind of lukewarm on it, that it gets better. So, you know, stick with it. Cool. And also, like, it's five acts. The fifth act still isn't out. Uh, so really? It, yeah. But so it, I don't know if we're going to make it, you know, in this decade or if it's going to cross over into the next decade a little bit. But I mean, we're not. Well, I mean... Like they, they, <laughs> like, they could, who knows? Uh, it's very mysterious. Keep hope alive, Caroline. I am, I am. Um, get out, Ebony. Yeah. Get out. I will. Um, <clears throat> suburb. Suburb. Listen, <laughs> if we had um, had a category that was like breakthrough performance of the past 10 years, Lakeith Stanfield would be right up there for me. Um maybe neck and neck with Mahershala Ali, you know, like, whatever. Thank you. Um, but, <clears throat> okay, so y'all know that I have a love-hate relationship with horror, which is that I love it, and Anita hates to hear me bring it up all the time. <laughs> hey, yo! Okay. Uh, no, that so, is not true, but continue. <laughs> but um, it is very rare for um, horror as a genre, particularly um, in the visual medium, to center the black perspective. And so the way that Jordan Peele as director immediately clues the viewer in to the fact that this is a film that is going to be centered um, on blackness and from a black perspective um, was, was absolutely delicious to me as a viewer. Um, the way that there are certain allusions, there are certain end jokes, there are certain, you know, just notes 
for a specific sort of viewer who rarely gets to feel as if this is made for us or that we are going to understand this perhaps in a deeper way or in a much different way than another audience will um, is, is just was really crucial to, um, to my enjoyment. I also think the way that the film um, really pays dividends if you constantly ask yourself where the source of the horror is. Um, so yes, absolutely, you could read this film on a surface level about you know a guy who gets you know um, kidnapped by a <laughs> wild family and whatever, right? But but obviously the sort of like you know cultural implications and racial implications are the ones that are at the forefront. So we so we recognize that. But what I love about this scene at the beginning and a film that, or excuse me, a scene um, that, is, that mirrors it at the end when, um, when we see like TSA Rod come to the rescue is the way that Get Out, <laughs> love that scene, the way that Get Out forces you to understand that to exist in a black body, particularly a black male body, is yourself to be the source of the fear. That... We see Lakeith Stanfield walking down the street of this suburb. He does not know where he is. There are those confusingly named, you know, streets. And he is immediately marked as an outsider. The environment itself, you know, is, is pushing in on him, suggesting that he needs to be, uh, you know, pushed out, right? And he says, I stand out like a sore thumb here. And the fear is that if someone comes upon me and recognizes me as an outsider, I'm going to be in danger because they are going to assume that I am a danger. In the same way that at the end of the film, when, thank God, CSA Rod shows up, when we first see those lights, what do you think? You think, he's going to die. He's going to be shot in the way that so many other uh, young black men are killed by the state. And so, yeah, I just think this film has so many smart things to say about living in blackness, um, about how we experience, you know, horror differently, um, how the just everyday life as a black person means to walk a line, you know, of almost, you know, existential dread. Um, so, yeah, this movie, I just... Talk about a towering achievement from a debut director. Huge. I could not say enough about Huge. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I picked The Leftovers for Best Cultural Commentary, and it, it partly as an excuse to talk about The Leftovers, not necessarily because it's the best of that, but I also, I'm going to make an argument for this. Um, so Emily Todd Vanderwerf for Vox said, The Leftovers is an open door to a lot of stuff we don't like to talk about. And so I think, um, you know, when I think about cultural commentary, I think about high-level issues of oppression, uh, structural injustice, and that sort of thing. I think what The Leftovers does is it brings it back to be a little more um, intimate and a little more personal. It is a show... Um, you know, 2% of the population disappeared instantly. So millions of people disappeared instantly. Obviously it is, has this religious overtone of the rapture um, and nobody knows what happened, they're just gone. And so the show is deeply, deeply entrenched in grief and in loss. And all three seasons of it are, are a world, uh, like a, an entire world, an entire planet of people dealing with 
mass trauma. And I think that that commentary is so fascinating because we definitely get media that talks about grief and loss, but the magnitude and the like, the like laser focus on that, I think, um, really resonated with me, maybe also because of where I was in my life at the time, but also because it was just so like, it felt different. And it felt very raw. Um, you know, these are people who are trying to piece their lives and their hearts back together after something that you couldn't even possibly fathom surviving, right? Um, and, you know, there's obviously these religious overtones and undertones and the rapture and all that, but it's, I, I think the, the show is much less about, like, does God exist, which is not, and I am not really interested in that conversation. Um, it's more about, is there even a purpose to life? Which I feel like is that deep existential dread of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What is this? What does anything mean even? Why are we? Who are we? And I say all this and I'm like, well, God, it must sound like the most bleak show ever, but it's not. Like it's not, it is and it's not at the same time. And I think that um, you know, what we're seeing from all of these individuals who are surviving are that they're building their own narratives to, to answer, to, to create answer for what is unanswerable, to find control in what is out of control. And I find that as such a deep cultural commentary on humans and how we think and how we behave. Um, and ultimately, I think the show is telling us that the value of our lives is building relationships and connections with one another and what that means and how we, how we engage. And that, that's what's really important in life. So when you were watching um, Avengers Endgame and they were done with this, <laughs> were you just throwing raisinets at the screen being like, the leftovers did it better, you I mean, suck, boo. It crossed my mind uh -huh. if I ate raisinets. <laughs> Uh, I definitely was like, oh, cool. So this is like ripoff leftovers. Cool, cool, cool. And I'm sure there's other narrative, like other stuff that talks. It's a, it's an old religious like, story. Lee Ribbonal. Yeah. So quick question, because I'm never going to watch the leftovers. But it's got, what's his face in it? Yeah, right. I'm never going to watch My the leftovers. Dude. So Justin, Justin Thoreau, right? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> do oh, they come back or do a, they stay gone? It also has, what's her name in it? This come tells on, me nothing. On, I don't know I what this means. I honestly don't know who you're talking about. You have to give me more than that. Anyone? Throw from The Watchmen. Regina King? King? Yes. Oh. She's oh. In it. Because they're like. The same episodes as Justin Through? Can, like, can I skip his parts? <laughs> wow. Uh, I think the first season was so white that the second season, they're like, cool, we need a black family in here. So, you know, it, How it many wasn't. Times it have I has said its that? problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what was your question? But I said, do the people stay gone or do they come back? I'm not going to tell come you that. On. I'm never going to watch I don't, it. Well, Whisper uh, after my, <laughs> whispered in my ear. This is not just a private conversation between me and you, Ebony. It isn't? Okay. I'm not answering that question. I'm gonna look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I will say also one of the last, I think like the second to last episode, um, Carrie Coon did one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen on TV. Like the whole episode was her, and I don't know how she didn't like win every award that's ever been made ever. It is brilliant. Like just watch that episode mm -hmm. just for the sheer emotional amazingness of it. So, and Justin Thoreau is either not in it or barely in it. So there you go. Thumbs up for the people listening at home in Radio Land, Podcast Land. All thumbs right. Thumbs up for that. Um, with the last uh, few minutes that we have, do you want to just reflect on like the larger concept of a, a decade wrap up, where we started, where we're going? You know. I mean, it feels. To, I, I can't. Um, I, it's it's obviously it's, it's so vast and staggering to think about 
where we are now versus where we were 10 years ago? Because it feels like, um, I mean, conversations around media have changed just so much, but and, and because of social media, but every, every, it feels like everything is, is laid out. I guess what I would say is that it, it doesn't feel like we've won or that things are better, or, or I mean, they're somewhat better, but they're also worse. Like, I, it just feels like everything is out on the table now. Like, oh, we had Gamergate. We have these conversations about representation are way more common, and, and everyone's engaged in them and having them, but, but that also means that, the, that people who are deeply, deeply opposed to that stuff are way more vocal, and that their attitudes and ideas are out there, and, you know, and it's, I mean, it's not a, a different universe from all of that in which Trump is currently in the White House. It's just that, I guess, it just feels like a lot of stuff that kind of passed under the surface or wasn't openly discussed and, and uh, hashed out and everything uh, maybe you know 10 years ago is now stuff that we are just constantly all engaged in, in talking about and arguing about and fighting against or fighting for. Uh, so obviously I was being facetious earlier when we were talking about the streaming services, but I really don't think we have a way to understand what this is doing to our media and what it will do, you know, what things will look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, given that, you know, our whole notion of like what what counts as a successful show or a successful movie um, when you're not talking about people watching three channels, but you're talking about people who have the option of watching thousands of things at once. And, and if we're not watching them concurrently, what does it mean to have cultural conversations when we're not watching things piece by piece, you know, week by week, but you can binge something in an afternoon, you know, um, and you have to maybe stay off social media for two weeks because you can't get to the Game of Thrones finale, but you know everybody's going to be talking about it in one way, right? So I just think like, in addition, the way that we are watching things is changing. Um, what we are choosing to, to allow um, is changing. And I'm, I'm loving it. I think that there, I don't know, I feel very hopeful, but I also feel like um, there's also the opportunity for, you know what, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there with, with being hopeful. Um, because I do think that there's a way in which digital media can be manipulated um, for nefarious ends or, you know, bad actors. And I don't mean, you know, acting, but I mean, like, you know, the Game Brigaders, for instance, right? And the people, like deep you know. Deepfakes, the, the exploitable exactly, exactly, potential exactly. with deepfakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I am concerned about that kind of thing. But for the most part, yeah, I am e extremely hopeful. Yeah. Give me your Disney Plus account, Zina. I hope you just get bombarded with passwords. Yeah, me too. <laughs> little, I also password hope that bomb. for myself. Um, yeah. I don't really... I have so many thoughts, I don't know how to put them all together. Just give um, us one. I think, you know, I, people are always... Like, I get asked a lot about, like, how is it different? Like, is it better? Is the games industry better? Is the media better? Blah, blah, blah. You've been doing this for a decade. And, you know, one of the things we're talking about is that there's so much more media, but it's also... We're compete like the competition of of media makers is not just what is coming out now. It's everything that's ever been made is also available to us. So like it's just this huge pile that we're sifting through, and it feels like we're moving forward. It feels like it because uh, creators who previously were not given opportunities 
have been given opportunities, right? So people whose stories were never told before get to tell their stories or their stories get to be told by white people, but whatever. Um, not whatever, but you that's know what not, I mean? Yeah, that's not the same <laughs> thing. It's not a whatever. No, like, but, it, but we're, there's a visibility of both stories of, pe of people who, have, who were historically erased and of people who were historically erased getting to tell their stories. Um, and I think that that is really important and that happened for a number of reasons that involved people doing work, doing activism, organizing. It was social media provide like lending, like a, a kind of allowing or creating space for people to speak up and scream about the things that they're upset about and forcing companies to then realize that there are these, all these other markets out there of people who want different kinds of things. I, I, I didn't mean to go on so long about that. My point being is that we now have more options. We have so many options that I think it's easy for us to forget that all that other crap is still being made, right? Like when I turn on CBS All Access to watch Discovery, um, Star Trek Discovery, not another kind of Discovery, mm -hmm. um, there's like, you know, Blue Bloods and mm -hmm. there's that like Navy Seals show, like, which is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. Like those are still being made. <laughs> right, like they still exist. So I don't, I never know how to answer this question in a way that feels um, cohesive or helpful or useful because I think we just have more media with the opportunity for, for more people to make it, which also includes all the old guards and all the oppressive stuff as well. We just don't have to engage with it like we did before. Yeah, because 10 years ago, there was a different version of Blue Bloods out there, but 10 years ago, we didn't have She-Ra. You know, yeah, or so like, or insecure, or yeah. Queen Sugar, mm -hmm. or you know, like you know, Ava DuVernay. Like, shout out to her; she should get some kind of end of decade whatever because, like, she's done so much work to bring up women. Like, and I think this came up in your Star Trek panel earlier this morning. Of like, there is something about like it's not just that you finally have a seat at the table; it's that you're trying to bring up everyone else who didn't have a seat at the table and like fucking knock the table over, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's make this a bigger space. So. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's do our stupid thing. Do you want to do it? Oh my gosh, sure. <laughs> okay. okay, last thing and then we're done. So I want everyone to think of what their favorite thing is this last decade, okay? Media, is that what you're talking about? Like media yeah, product? Thank okay. you. Uh -huh. You don't need to raise your hand. No, just think about it. Um, on the count of three, I want you all to say what your favorite thing is at the same time, okay? You got it? This is going to be amazing audio soup for our producer. <laughs> it's so good. He's going to All be right. so excited. One, two, three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got nothing. I got I Steven am. Universe. You heard what? I got Steven Universe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was the only one I heard. How many people said Steven Universe? Uh, I have banana soup pens for y'all. <laughs> Cute. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Woo! Um, <laughs> in, in the coming weeks, we are going to have an episode where we each reflect on like our very favorite piece of media a little more in-depthly, so check that out. Stay tuned for that. Um, and remember, you can help keep uh, critical feminist media analysis alive by supporting our Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash femfreak. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for coming out, Thank everybody. You. Enjoy the rest of your Geek Girl Con. Woo! Thank you, everyone, for bearing with our technical difficulties. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, just real quick, you know, like, subscribe, rate, all of that fun stuff. 
And our podcast is edited by Rob Para. Uh, technical support is by Sarah Norales. Art is by Jamie Varon. And the intro music is by Phil Circus. We'll see y'all next week.